Welcome back, everyone, to So As We Were Saying, a physical therapy podcast. This is season three, episode one. Got my co-host here, Mike Reeves. Hello, David. Good to finally catch up. It's been a while. Yeah, sorry, everyone. We've been out of uh, commission for a little bit. Uh, Emily and I bought a house and been starting up a new job over at the Sports Medicine Center down here in Pittsburgh. And it's been a little bit hectic, but we're finally back at it for season three. And we're going to keep trying to produce more episodes, more seasons, discuss our own experiences that we have with tough patient cases and keep the dialogue rolling. Mike, what have you been up to in the last few months? Not much. So I'm currently sitting in my house quarantining with COVID. Before that, I was just kind of working normal, same old, same old. Summer summer always is a little bit busy for me. I placed some mildly competitive ultimate frisbee still, so travel around a little bit with that. You still see in pediatrics, yeah? Yep, all pediatric sports uh, for my full-time stuff, and then just a little stuff on the side, cash stuff. I keep it pretty small, like chill over the summer. Are you just, um are, are you specializing in anything like like is there a specific joint or diagnosis that you would say you see the most of now? Uh, now that sports are back in session, I'm gonna get back more into like a lot of concussions and a lot of like post-op knees and stuff. With the concussion stuff, are you doing exertion? A little bit. So I don't have any way to measure heart rate right now in clinic. So I tend to just use RPE. So I mean, it's something that like, ideally, I would like, but it's kind of, it's also kind of one of those things where if, if your patients don't have heart rate monitoring software, like on their own, like on, on their, if they have a good smartwatch with like a decent heart rate monitor or something, it's, I think RPE is probably going to do just about as good. Uh, if they're maybe like an older athlete, I might push them to use their fitness watch because so many people have them i like in clinic I, I don't have anything so i just use rpe but yeah some like some sort of exertion stuff normally at least 20 to 25 minutes if it's something that i think will be like beneficial to their overall course of care and then talk to me about the cash stuff you're not taking any insurance just strictly cash right strictly cash right now yeah i mean at some point i might get credentialed if i ever try and grow it beyond what it is right now but I'm in a decent setup with my current full-time job. I'm not really looking to leave anytime soon. So I think insurance, my, my, my volume might be easier to grow beyond what I'm kind of willing to take on at this point. So yeah. keeping it more just purely cash. Yeah, I think this is a topic that I wanted to get into a little bit more. We've had a few DMs of just listeners who wanted to hear certain topics or was just they were just reaching out to let us know that you know they appreciate the content we're producing and that. They were wondering when the next season was coming out. So they gave us a few ideas for some episodes. But one of the questions was related to cash PT versus taking insurance and what the drawbacks were versus the benefits. And between my wife's practice and in your side practice here, I feel like we've got at least a decent amount of experience to be able to touch on the subject and, and weigh the pros and cons. So if you're thinking about starting a side practice or a full-time practice and you just want to kind of freelance it, I think the main thing in cash versus insurance is looking at how much time you're dedicating versus how much the, the reimbursement is actually providing. So I'll give you an example. I was seeing some Blue Cross Blue Shield patients and I kind of got the whole claim form down pack where I could probably file a claim in 15 minutes. And the reimbursement for three, I think it was four units actually was close to like a hundred bucks. So for a little over an hour, you'd get a hundred bucks, which is pretty good. And it's easier to do when when your volume's low, but something you run into, especially 
when you're going to try to grow your practice is at some point those claims become overwhelming where you have to hire someone or really take a lot of time out of your day to file and really chase down some of those claims. And then that's when it gets a little bit more overwhelming. Whereas if you're a smaller practice and you take a little bit of cash, a little bit of insurance, it may not be as daunting. So I think it really depends on when you're setting up your practice, you have to kind of decide, am I going to be a one man or woman show? Or am I going to try to grow this into a clinic with a whole team? And what ends up happening is as that clinic grows, depending on your ratio of insurance to cash, you're going to have to hire non-revenue generating staff to help manage this. So that would be front desk staff for scheduling, coordinating, marketing, and then at the same time, someone that handles billing. So that's when the actual PT reimbursement starts to drop is when you have to add in these other employees to handle the non-revenue generating aspects of the of the practice, such as processing claims and scheduling and doing those type of things. So if you're a one-man show or a one-woman show and you do a little bit of insurance and a little bit of cash and you feel comfortable handling those claims on the side, you're right. It is a nice way to kind of fill in some of those gaps. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, and that's kind of my thing too. You know, I, I obviously I feel like as like physical therapists, we probably feel questions from a lot of people like, are you going to start your own practice and all of that? And it's, I mean, it's, it's hard <laughs> to, to, to do that. I mean, it, and, it, and it's a lot of work. You got to be willing to put the grind in. So, and the, yeah, and that's the thing like with, with insurance, you can, you know, spend the time like creating and, you know, submitting your own claims and getting reimbursed and the reimbursement's fine. But yeah, other than that, I like, for me, I just want some extra income on the side. So cash makes perfect sense for me. Yeah. I think my biggest recommendation is if you're starting off is obviously keeping your expenses as low as possible. And I think with this Google Doc documentation system that you've made, Mike, um, so a little bit of information on that. Mike created some evaluation sheets that are based on different joints, whether it's hip, neck, low back, ankle, concussion, exertion, and it has every component that you would need to adhere to documentation standards or daily notes, your super bill, which you could provide to the patient if they're paying cash to submit for reimbursement to their insurance, evaluation, plan of care. And it's relatively free. I mean, you pay for G Suite. I think it's what, 10 bucks a month? If that. I think it's if even that. less than that. Uh, and then there's a, like eight. there's a certain setting that you have to click within G Suite to make it HIPAA compliant but it's relatively easy to do. And once you have that documentation system through Google Drive, you really don't have any expenses from the PT side other than maybe like an online fax service and then QuickBooks to manage your, your finances and accounting. Even through QuickBooks, you can send invoices, have people pay their invoice, and you don't really need any like credit card processing type of or debit card processing type of service. So I think for like 30 to 40 bucks a month, you could have a pretty decent infrastructure of everything you need from the PT side as far as accounting, documentation, and faxing plan of cares through an online fax service. So as far as that goes, if you can keep your expenses at 30 bucks a month and you can just kind of really take your time and, and build the practice slowly, I think you can do it for relatively cheap. I think you got to grind at the beginning. Like we had to set up for my wife, all of her compliance forms and financial disclosure forms and consent to treat and all those different things. But once you have that set up, it becomes pretty easy. We even developed outcome measures, ODI, pen shoulder score through Google Forms. 
and she emails those to her clients before she sees them. So you could have a fully uh, comprehensive documentation system, outcome measure system, and even compliance in regards to intake paperwork all through Google. And it's relatively low cost. Yeah. And so I was I was selling my my kit for a little bit. I, I, I stopped recently, but I'm thinking about starting back up again. Uh, it's just annoying to file taxes, to be honest. Uh. I think it's worth it, honestly, because even if you pay, let's say, a one-time payment of 100 bucks, if you look at Hino or all these other documentation systems, it's a monthly subscription, and that's taking money out of the bottom line at the end of every month, where if you could have something low-cost, low-maintenance, even faxing the plan of cares becomes easier because it can create that Excel sheet into a PDF pretty easily. And then the way the online fax works is you just send it like, like almost like it's an email, and then it transmits it into a fax. So it really streamlines it within Google to have an online fax service that can easily just send out Planet Cares and, and receive signed Planet Cares through the, the Gmail. Yeah, and it absolutely makes it very, very easy. I, I think it's, I mean, really it comes out to about, I think $16 a month is what I pay for like that stuff. It's a fax is like, I think $8, $8 a month using SR fax. And then uh, the Google workspace as it's now called is like $8 a month. Right. So not bad at all. And the, and the expenses are the, are the key is keeping your expenses low. 30 bucks a month, it's very reasonable, affordable for all those different services that can help you just keep the logistics of your side hustle or practice running. And I think if you have like a sniff job, a hospital acute job, something where there's not a non-compete and you can pull it off on the side, I definitely think it's worth just looking into and setting up. And I mean, my wife even does it as her full-time job. And, you know, at that point it becomes a little bit trickier if, if you're not married because, you know, I have a stable, steady full-time job with an established hospital system with, with great benefits and health insurance. Some things to consider too, is that if you're going headfirst without having an actual job with benefits as your main source of income is health insurance. It's expensive. So that's a huge expense. And then taxes, when you own your own business, you're going to pay taxes as the business, and then you're going to pay taxes as an employee of the business. That's assuming that you're set up as an S-corp, which separates the business as a separate entity, and then you are paying yourself as an employee of that business. Now, you could always go, go as a sole proprietor, but it's a little bit more risk because if somebody does decide to sue you as the company, then they can go after personal assets. So it is better to separate the two. And it makes it a little bit easier, too, if you're looking to expand the practice to already have that S-Corp established rather than transitioning once you try to hire employees. That's uh, logistics. That actually brings me to payroll. We use Gusto Payroll Service. So that it's pretty straightforward. You type in the hours, the hourly rate for the employee, and it calculates everything for you. you when you set it up, you input your local, state, and federal taxes in. It calculates and pays all your taxes for you. So it's one less tax liability you have to worry about. So Emily is for your guys stuff. She's like your revenue generator, essentially. And then you were saying that you'd handle some of like the paperwork stuff, some of the tax stuff. Yeah. Now, are you like on the payroll for her company? Yeah, so I'm on the payroll. Part of Emily's company is it's physical therapy. There's photography within it because she does newborn photography and She's been delving into a little bit more like portrait, family photography, event photography. So sometimes I'll second shoot for her and I have my own rate, which I pay myself hourly. And then I don't necessarily pay myself for the administrative work, such as taxes, quarterly taxes, um, 
running payroll, those type of things. Just because running payroll is so fast, I sit down on the computer, I type in the hours, it's a 10 minute ordeal. The most time consuming thing is probably just the bookkeeping, making sure that all the expenses are categorized appropriately and that they're the books are balanced so that when it comes for taxes, we're not scrambling to try to figure everything out. But I would say monthly, I probably spend less than an hour okay. doing all of those logistics. But yeah, other than that, if if I do anything for the business that's time consuming, I will pay myself through it. Gotcha. So I think that covers most of the bases, at least from the logistics of, of opening a practice. There are some other startup costs, such as actually creating the LLC my wife used LegalZoom. It was pretty straightforward. I mean, probably more expensive than if you just filed the paperwork yourself. So it just depends how much work you're willing to put in. I think you just have to register with the IRS as a as a company and do a few other uh, filings with your local and state government. But I think just from an ease standpoint, I think it was like a few hundred bucks to do it through LegalZoom. Yeah, it was super easy. And then there, I mean, there were just like a few other things on like the front end of starting the practice that needed to happen. It was, you know, setting up an LLC. Uh, you had to get your type two NPI number and get a right, tax yeah. identification number. And then you have to get like registered to do business within your, uh, like for me, I live in Philadelphia. I had to like register within the city of Philadelphia. Yeah. And I mean, I think it really comes down to the same problem that even established clinics have if you're really trying to grow is let's say you establish a single person successful cash practice. Now you're going to hire someone at that point. This is a problem that my wife is running into is I'm getting busy. I'm getting a lot of clients. I'm making good money. But how do I expand? Because she's really selling herself. She is the product and the service. People are buying her as a person, her as a clinician. So how do you really expand cash and teach someone to be who you are? And I think that's the hardest part for her is I want to expand and hire someone because I'm getting so busy. But how am I going to create someone that replicates me? And and that's a tough question to ask. I don't think someone can replicate who you are. I think it's going to be more of you meet someone, you like them, you think other people will like them, and you let them be their own clinician, a part of your business. And then you share some of the wealth, you share some of the profit with them. I mean, if you're doing home visits and there's no overhead, so you really can compensate them somewhat generously, even though you did put in the money for the startup cost and all the risk. But I think that's a hard part about expanding purely cash is that you have to believe in someone and let them be themselves and hopefully they can generate their own. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, yeah. expanding a cash practice is hard, especially when you start it as yourself. Like it's, yeah. Yeah, it's tough. And then otherwise, if you don't stick to cash and you start expanding and taking insurance, then you become just like every other clinic in town because as your clinic grows, then that one-on-one -on -one time because becomes okay, well, now now that we're only taking insurance and maybe have one or two cash pay, now we can only spend 30 minutes one-on-one, -on -one, and now we've got to do a little bit of overlap. Okay, now we're overlapping, we're billing more. Well, we got to hire more people to bill, more people to schedule. Now we can only do 20-minute slots, and then it starts to really water down and dilute the schedule. So what made you different at the beginning, the one-on-one -on -one care, now you're becoming just like everybody else by expanding, and this is a problem that every clinic is still dealing with. And just to finish up on the cash PT thing so we can delve into some other topics, I think there is a sweet spot where you can take some insurance, some cash, grow your practice where it's maybe one or two locations, it's not too overwhelming, and you don't have too much non-revenue generating staff, and as the owner, make a comfortable income. But I think eventually there becomes a ceiling as you expand to multiple clinics and you start to really water down your care. But I, I think there is a sweet spot. I think you could have 
you know, a staff of three front desk staff, and maybe you do a little bit of your billing and hire your front desk to do some of that, or even clinicians in the downtime and, and find that sweet spot. But there really um, is a limit to how far you can expand when you start to take insurance and still be able to provide that quality one-on-one care that, that drove you to start the practice in the first place. Yeah, for sure. I've kind of thought about that same sweet spot as well. And I think it's, I think it, that sweet spot will involve you as like the owner still treating a decent amount. A hundred percent. Yeah. If you think you're going to step back and not treat at all, it's just not realistic. And also I think it just demoralizes your, your staff. I think if you aren't there on the front lines, your staff is going to look back and be like, well, why can't I just start my own practice and, and do, and do this? You know what I mean? Like I'm doing all the work. Um, so I think that that's part of leadership though. That's a whole different topic of, of are you in the trenches with the troops or are you in the castle sending people out to battle? So I think that's a whole different, different topic. Um, let's move on. As far as what I've been up to, started at a sports medicine center here in Pittsburgh, been seeing mainly spine patients, had a lot of my internships mentoring with FAOMS and also the spine specialist there who was there previously, who is still currently one of my mentors and very great, intelligent, smart, informational guy. So shout out to him. But anyways, I've been taking this primary spine practitioner course that's being developed, well, already is developed by the University of Pittsburgh, which is trying to improve spine care within the entire United States. It's open to chiropractors, physical therapists, any healthcare provider that wants to really improve their understanding of spine care from a primary contact perspective. This means that you're the first person they see and you're also the case manager for the case. I feel like I do this anyways, even when I'm not the primary contact point. There's so many other healthcare providers that are involved in patient's care and sometimes there's no one really coordinating everything that's going on and trying to use every resource available to get to a solution rather than just like a bunch of different short-term solutions all being applied separately. So that is definitely something that I've been enjoying. I feel like it's helping me become better as not only a therapist from a treatment standpoint, differential diagnosis, and then being able to refer patients who aren't appropriate, but also from a standpoint of becoming a better case manager and being able to coordinate and be almost like the quarterback for the health team, which is I think would be a huge leap if physical therapists can play that role regularly because it would really improve the respect that we get within the profession, within the healthcare community, and even within just the actual community as far as being able to be viewed as a decision maker and someone that can help comprehensively manage tough cases. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things that's it's like seems to be a really good program. Uh, you've kind of filled me in a little bit on it. I've kind of done a little bit of my own research into it because it seemed pretty interesting. Uh, a lot of our old professors are kind of the ones that help teach it um, based on what I saw and maybe a couple other people. I just, it's just so frustrating that like they go through all the time and energy to put out this amazing product and help give clinicians better tools than what most of the people who are currently running quarterback for the system understand. When, when does it actually get implemented? I mean, are we looking like 15 years down the road where this thing actually starts to happen? Are we looking sooner than that? Like, I mean, because it's not going to, I just don't see it taking off in the next couple of years where you're, 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 you're filling the role that you're prepared for. And like, it's because it has to be, it has to fit within the insurance world or else it's not going to work. So that's a, it's a great question. I think my answer is going to be less relevant to our local system and more relevant just to different 
systems that I've seen across the country. There's a great book that's actually a required reading for, for the course. It's called The Innovator's Prescription by Clayton Christensen. It's a great book. I think he has another version, which is just relevant to any type of innovation, but this one is more specific to healthcare. So he describes a few different phenomena within any industry that basically causes a huge revolution within that industry to occur. So within healthcare, the big problem is that you have all these different systems that are set up to operate a certain way. And when you introduce something new within an already established system, it doesn't necessarily take fold because the system is already operating in a manner that is conducive to the moving pieces that it has. So I'll give you an example. In the book, it talks about intuitive medicine. And this is kind of like how medicine has worked since the beginning of time. You go and you see one person and you tell them your symptoms. And based on what they've seen, their experience and their education, they use their educated intuition to give you a diagnosis. At this point, technology has reached a place where you can put all these symptoms into an algorithm and it spits out in, you know, the most probable diagnoses in order. So as far as intuitive medicine, it's kind of fading out of favor because there's so many algorithms that can, can generate the probability of a certain diagnosis. Now, this is more from like the medical standpoint, but when it comes to practitioners actually, or, or physicians actually finding a diagnosis, a lot of PCPs are still operating under the idea of intuitive medicine and sticking to old practice patterns. So that's a huge problem for any type of disruptive innovation that's going to come and transform the health system. So what we're seeing now is a little bit more of specialized medicine, where let's say if you're doing a very straightforward basic operation or surgery, there are very specific technicians that do large parts of these basic surgeries. And then the skilled surgeons are performing the more difficult portions of the surgery or the actual more difficult surgeries. So this is the way that you can take those highly skilled individuals and apply them to the most difficult cases, but then have lower cost healthcare professionals deliver those type of services that are more routine. And this is going to carry over to physical therapists because at this point, when you go to see your PCP, they're kind of the gatekeeper to everything else where what we need is individual providers that are the gatekeepers depending on what realm you're being seen for. So if you're being seen for, let's say, a heart issue, you might want to go to a nurse practitioner who sees cardiac patients. And if you have low back pain, musculoskeletal pain, you may want to see a physical therapist who is the gatekeeper for that arena. So to answer your question of how that's actually going to happen is that the whole idea is that individual practice owners within their community who have trust and influence can build enough relationships to become those primary contact points. So we talked about this in previous episodes of when you have those successful cases, especially when you're in smaller non-established hospital systems, that's when you educate about direct access and say, hey, if you ever have a problem, I even do this in an established hospital system. I say, hey, it's a pleasure working with you. You know, you're going to do great. Here's your home program. If anything pops up, you know, you don't have to go see a physician first. You can always come here for 30 days. And then if it's a problem that we need to continue with longer, then we can always fill your physician in and get a signed plan of care, et cetera, et cetera. But educating on the direct access after those successful cases and then building that trust and those positive relationships so that when they do have an injury, they know that they can actually come to us. So what is the 
like with the primary spine practitioner, is it practitioner or provider? Practitioner. Practitioner. Okay. Uh, the primary spine practitioner kind of like course and stuff is the goal to like change almost how the healthcare system as a whole kind of looks at like spine care. You know I mean? It, like if your back hurts, you go to your doctor's office and instead of seeing a doctor, you see the primary spine practitioner that they have on staff or down the hall at like the PT clinic before you go back and see the like doctor, you know what I mean? Like where like sports med, they have both the physicians and the PTs. Someone comes in, they have back pain. They just kind of go right down to PT first and PT says, you can stay with me or this is a little fishy. Why don't you go back to your, to the physician down the hall and have, have them take a look at it and maybe because you might need additional interventions other than me at this point, you know? I think more what it's designed to do is empower clinicians in their communities with the essential tools to take their spine care and their knowledge of spine care to a point where they feel comfortable being that primary contact and making really educated evidence-based decisions. And then building almost like this network of primary spine practitioners throughout the country that are all operating in this way. And then when all of those people can demonstrate that level of of competence and skill of being almost like that quarterback for patients' health team within their community. People, and my people, I mean other healthcare providers, such as physicians, nurse practitioners, whoever may be, will start to say, wow, these therapists or chiropractors are really starting to have these patients trust and they have these large patient networks. We need to build good relationships with them to have access to their patients so that they'll refer to us. And then instead of us looking for referrals from a physician or from another practice, we have all the patients as their primary contact point. So they're looking for referrals from us. So I think it has to happen outside of systems to create that disruptive innovation or to create enough disruption to change the system. I don't think it's something that can be embedded within an already organized system. And that's what the whole uh, book by Clayton Christensen discusses is any type of innovation that's disruptive to a current system has to originate from outside the system because the current system won't allow it to thrive. Cool. I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, like if, yeah, in that case, it could absolutely work because it's just giving clinicians the skills to be their own kind of almost like a, like a better businessman, like through just having a better product than everyone else. And right. So I think that is, um, something that'll be interesting to see how it develops. And I think it brings us to our next topic that somebody, um, who messaged us wanted us to kind of touch on was the scope of PT practice. At that point, when we're becoming quote unquote quarterback and we're already doing this as case managers sometimes if we're coordinating with doctors, how far does our scope of practice actually go? Do we discuss medications with patients or what can we actually say regarding medication? Do we discuss diet and nutrition? Like where, where does the boundary end for what we do and don't discuss with, with patients? Yeah, it's tricky. Um, How far I mean, do you go into diet? Do you, do you discuss anything dietary with your patients? I give very like quick, brief advice just on like general nutrition stuff. Like it's something that, you know, I have a decent amount of like, you know, knowledge on um, from more from like a performance standpoint with like my strength and conditioning specialist. There's a little bit in that kind of study work that you need. I do a decent amount on my own looking into research and stuff. So more from like a, just kind of like general 
appropriate fuel and stuff like i guess probably more like macros than micros and encouraging people to just make generally healthy choices and then if they if they and, and pretty much what i say is like if, if you really want to look into this you should probably talk to someone who knows a lot more than me and from like a performance standpoint kind of connected with a girl in philadelphia um can't hammer her name i'll 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 give her a plug. She has like Hammer Fuel Nutrition is her um, website. She's on Instagram as well at Hammer Fuel. I'm not sure. I'd have to look that up. But she is like, she does a lot of like performance nutrition for people in the area. And she's kind of like my like side hustle stuff where it's like all, all cash for, for that side of things. But she seems pretty good. So um, she's the person that I've been, if, if people want like actual like nutrition advice, then I, I will give them her name. So I'm not sure if any of my patients have taken me up on it yet giving her name to like a few people, but that's kind of what, what, what I do. Give some like quick basic, basic advice, but also give it like the disclaimer of I'm not an expert on this. This is mostly, you know, this is kind of like a thing that I learned a little bit about on, on the side of those people that know a lot more than me. Here's one that I trust if you want to kind of look into it. Right. Yeah. And I think I really like what you touched on there at the end is I try not to delve too much into nutrition. I'll give general advice if it's something really short and quick. But if it's something that I think someone would really benefit from a lifestyle change, like for example, someone with like autoimmune systemic inflammatory stuff going on, then I might say, you know what, this is outside of my scope. I deal with this or I refer to this dietitian a lot. I think she'll be really helpful. I really try to refer to dietetics as much as I can, just because once you start to build those relationships and networks, those dietitians have access to patients that don't come to PT, but probably need it. I mean, they see diabetics, they see people with heart disease. And at some point that referral is going to come back the other way. So I think using those opportunities to rather be the end all be all know it all, using it to help build and strengthen your relationship networks is more advantageous than just trying to be like, wow, that PT knows so much about everything. Cause more than likely we probably don't. I mean, a dietitian there, skilled in assessing and, and administering dietary regimens for those special populations. So I use it as an opportunity to refer. Same goes for personal training, strength and conditioning. I mean, I feel comfortable doing a strength and conditioning program, but at some point I have to draw the line because I see insurance. At what point does this become physical therapy versus strength and conditioning? And, and I incorporate strength and conditioning concept, principles, exercises into my treatment. But once I've actually resolved your problem and you can pretty much do your program alone and you just need someone for periodization, progression, that type of stuff, I've got to get you to a strength and conditioning coach or strength and conditioning performance uh, improvement specialist because it's outside of my realm at that point. And if you're paying me cash, that's different because we can take it as far as you want. But from that point, I mean, those strength and conditioning specialists are going to be working with athletes. And when those athletes get hurt, they're going to send the referrals back my way. So it's another way to strengthen the referral network and the relationships with other providers and specialists in the, in the area. Yeah. I mean, you kind of open up like a weird, like tricky thing that, that, that transition between like PT and like strength and conditioning and like, wh when does it switch? So it's, you know, when you're dealing within the insurance system, it's kind of hard. Like, like I, I work with young athletes. So that's a, that, that's kind of like a tricky little thing that I, that I deal with a lot. Whereas, you know, once they're, once their pain's down a little bit, you know, to the point where really they can kind of like self-manage. Right. And then it's with, with a lot of things like to expect that someone's going to be like a hundred percent zero pain in, you know, the course of, you know, potentially like in 
eight week physical therapy course of treatment. You know, I, I just don't think that's going to be there a lot, but you can see when an injury is on a really good trajectory. And as long as someone keeps doing their stuff at home, it's just going to keep getting better and kind of drawing that line. is I, I feel like that's something that, I mean, you and me have been out of school about four years now, and I feel like I'm getting better at drawing that line, but I still have a long way to go to kind of, because every, everything's just a little bit different. Yeah. Um, trying to figure that out to the point where it's like I can kind of make them a good enough home program that works in a little bit of kind of more rehabby things, working on the things that they still need to work on a little bit, flexibility, mobility, and like strength, but also working in like a general strengthening type program, getting out of your boring early on PT exercises. We're really just trying to strengthen around someone's pain and then getting into, we really just have to get you strong. Um, so your body has the tools and it needs to uh, play soccer, or football, or volleyball, or whatever sport they're getting back to. On the insurance side, it's kind of, you kind of do it that way. And then, but where do you draw the line on the, the cash side of things too? You know, well, cash have, is cash. So that's a, uh... That they can pay forever. I mean, at that point, it, it's, um, I mean, most of us have a exercise science or physiology or one of those degrees. And even a strength and conditioning and personal training world is unregulated. So someone could pay you cash to be their personal trainer and you would need absolutely no licensing or credentialing to, to make that legit. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think it's more like I have a hard time with like if someone's not in like a lot of pain anymore and they really just need to keep getting strong you know it's like well, you know i can structure you know your workouts for you trying to find that balance whereas like do you actually need like one-on-one -on -one with me i'm seeing this a lot in the tr transition from summer to fall is i have a lot of young athletes who let's say are injured or have been dealing with like musculoskeletal aches and pains within their previous season and they come and see me and they're like, all right, well, season starts back up in the fall. We've got like 10 weeks of summer, you know, from when they came to see me to get me back to where I need to be for fall sports, like to decrease my pain. So I've seen this a lot. They go through treatment. They do well. They're not in any pain. They're like weaning back into their activity. And then boom, they start this huge volume of sports and practices and all this stuff. And then those aches and pains come back, maybe not at the same level that it was at when they saw me, but maybe to a lesser extent. And I think with sports, there's always going to be a level of this is sore today, or this is achy, or this is this, and this is that. So I think one thing that doesn't get touched on enough in a network that we don't really utilize well as therapists is strength and conditioning. Because we have, or at least some of us that have background in strength and conditioning, personal training from when we were in undergrad, know how to use periodization, develop periodization programs, do all of those nitty gritty things that someone would do for a sports team. But within a physical therapy practice, it's very time consuming and overwhelming to develop a full year long season periodization program for an athlete. And you don't really get reimbursed from that, especially from like an insurance standpoint. So what I've been trying to tell my young athletes, especially when I'm done with them is listen, you're good. You finish your season, but at some point, if you want to, take your sports or your athletics to the next level. You really need someone who is your dedicated strength and conditioning provider who can develop in-season, off-season, within-season training programs and periodization models to change your rep, your set schemes. Are you doing endurance? Are you doing hypertrophy? Are you doing strength? What do your active rest days look like? And really incorporating that into a comprehensive year-long program. 
so that you're not overtraining and your body's rested for your in-season play. And I don't think a lot of youth athletes understand that and their parents don't. So it's just kind of like, let's just do as much as we can until our bodies tells us not to. And even when we're hurt, well, we really need them to play this weekend. And yeah. I think you're seeing this more in the NBA. You look at Kawhi Leonard, he takes load management days. I think it's becoming a lot more aware and apparent the importance of load management for long-term physical health in the athlete. Yeah, I agree. The tough part with the high school athlete is the cost that's associated with it. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, like I, I work in, you know, just outside of North Philly where a lot of people that come to me don't have an extra $200 a month to pay for, you know, high level training. It's just not a thing. So you're almost just like crossing your fingers and praying that their strength coach at school or whatever, if they're playing football, for example, is going to do decent. So a lot of my time is spent on educating on like load management. Right. And so I'm someone that did not manage load very well myself, especially in like undergrad, I was just going crazy, doing all sorts of activity things all the time, working out, playing sports, playing intramurals. Right. And so I'm dealing with a lot of kind of like, just, I just beat the crap out of my body for a while type injuries. And so I think coming at it from that standpoint, just kind of like educating them on, you don't need to train every day. You don't need to go, you know, balls to the wall every single day you're in the gym. You know, if you have a couple of heavy lifting days a week, maybe three heavy lifting days a week, that's fine when you're in season, you can even have less, you know, if you're, running and lifting legs make sure you give yourself a rest day or just another body day just something to kind of let let you know not overuse things so bad to the point where they get to where they are now because a lot of times they're coming to see me because you know they have crazy tendonitis or delphemoral pain or some sort of hip issue something you know something that's you i can at least partially be attributed to training load and I think when you're younger, at least that's what a lot of people that I see, you have like a, a more is better mentality. And it's almost that like athletic mentality of like, if, if a little bit's good and a little bit's going to help me improve, then if I can just do as much as I, as my body can possibly tolerate, then that's going to be better. And it's not. And so having, having a lot of those conversations actually becomes a lot of, a lot of what I do from that, because like I said, it is people that don't have an extra hundreds of dollars to spend on a, on a strength coach to help manage the load. They are playing school sports, another club team or something like that. If it's something like track or soccer. Um, so talk to them about the importance of kind of listening to your body and maybe you don't need to practice twice a day, five days a week to, to be as good as you want to be have days that are more heavy on, on your legs and the fitness side of your sport. And then just work on like skills the other day. And that, that that'll be better for your body short-term and long-term. So. Yeah, and I think, I think you made some good points there. It kind of segues into the next topic that I wanted to uh, get into was the education with the patient. But what do you do when a provider, a different health provider provides education that you feel like is contradictory or counterproductive? So at least where I see this in my population is I get a lot of, um, you know, not a lot, but a decent bit of post-surgical individuals who before they had their surgery, already had low activity levels and were pretty sedentary. And now they get out of surgery and they come and see me six weeks later. And the advice they've been given is just get out there and walk as much as you can. And I think the instinct that we have as providers is to assume that all of our patients are lazy. And I don't necessarily think that's always true. I would say a lot of people don't know what to do and they guess. 
and they alternate between cycles of high increases in activity followed by large volumes of inactivity due to the pain that they've generated from those high volumes of activity. And then they alternate between these two and can never find a balance. So I see a lot of patients who uh, my treatment is kind of the standard, what, you know, what should be done, what we do, patients respond well, but then there's a subgroup that don't respond well. And then when I dive deeper into their subjective history or to their, their personal beliefs, their personal beliefs are the more I walk, the better. Where if you have a gluteal tendinopathy and someone tells you walk as much as you can, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. So how do you deal with those situations where um, a provider gives advice that is counterproductive to what you're trying to do as far as rehabilitation? I think a lot of times the first thing that I do is like check myself uh, and make sure that I'm just, you know, that the other provider might not actually know more than me about this individual topic. Like I, I work down the hall from a lot of like orthopedic and like sports med docs that they went to school for longer than me. So if I think one one thing and they think the other, and instead of immediately telling the patient that I disagree with that, maybe you should do something else. Um, I kind of was just kind of like wait and then kind of think about what they said and see if it kind of makes sense. Um, even if it's just from like a psychological standpoint from this patient, you know what I mean? Like maybe they picked up something that I haven't yet. Like maybe this person is like clearly someone that doesn't really want to do anything. So they say, walk as much as you can. And kind of in the back of their brain, they're, they're knowing that it's, you know, not going to be all that much or vice versa, you know, maybe shut it down knowing that this person's kind of that, you know, go kind of like crazy and do as much as they possibly can, probably way too much. And they say, you should probably just shut it down. You know, like maybe that's coming into play. So I, I think first I probably try and just check myself and make sure that this person isn't actually giving them information that might be better than what I probably was thinking in my brain. After that, it's trying to frame it. Like I, I, I don't like to, because a lot of other healthcare providers, they don't get to spend as much time with our patients as we do, right? So I spent 45 minutes doing an eval. They could be coming from their PCP who doesn't have as good of a knowledge on this stuff and spent 15 minutes and is giving them advice that they that they genuinely think is what's going to be best for this person, right? And if in my 45 minutes, I, you know, pick up something that they didn't, it's not because they're stupid, right? It's, they may just not have had time to do a thorough enough eval like I did. Um, so I try and frame it in a way that they said this, right? And this is probably why they said this. I'm thinking maybe we should do this other thing and here's why, based on me finding X, Y, and Z, this is why I think we should do this. Based on me not finding one, two, three, this is why I think that, you know, what they told you is probably because they just weren't able to spend enough time just based on, you know, how the system is currently structured. Um, and then, you know, I, I think in, in that point, they, they kind of like build trust because it's not like I'm right, your other person is stupid. It's just, you know, the, the way it's set up is that they send you to me, I do a little bit more thorough of an eval, and then we kind of like use that to kind of guide things. And then also, I could be wrong, they could be right. So we'll ride this out for now. And if we need to change course later, we can. 100%. Yeah, great answer. That's exactly uh, what I was thinking. The answer that that um, I think is most appropriate is always take a step back and, and think that, you know, we may not know as much as we think we know, and to really consider all the options and and really take a pause and let it play out. And then on the other end, if it is something where you do want to change their mind or perspective based on previous advice that they're given is framing it in a way where you say, you know, you were fresh out of surgery. You know, we wanted to get you moving. We wanted to get you walking. So, you know, that's the advice that we gave you today. You're, you're a little bit more sore. You're hurting a little bit more. 
So let's let's shut it down, like you said, for you know a few days. Let yourself recover from this treatment, and then we'll get you back into walking, and we'll uh, we'll kind of find a nice baseline for what's a good walking distance for you. So kind of not necessarily contradicting the other provider, but being able to frame it within why you're choosing a different decision within the moment, and that way I think you're not really <clears throat> excuse me you're not really stepping on toes. And you also have now opened the opportunity to enter some pain science education in the context of, of load management and get the point across that you want to convey. Yeah. And I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode, Mike. I wanted this to be more of like a catch up type of episode where we discuss some of the topics that our listeners had uh, DM'd us about that they wanted us to touch on. I hope we at least somewhat cover them without going on our usual tangent and rants. I look forward to the rest of the season. I think we're going to try to cover a wide range of topics. I want to try to get a few different clinicians to interview who are more specialized in their particular subjects. For example, like vestibular therapy was one of those that that we were requested to have an episode on. So I think that'd be really cool. I know you mentored with one of our ACL specialists a few years ago. And I think you'll bring a lot to the table in, in our ACL episode as far as like rehab and different graphs and return to sport and all that stuff. So I think that would be a good one. So we got a lot of different topics coming up this season. We'll try to crank these out. You know, we'll, we'll release episodes every week or two here in the fall. And then um, we'll continue to move forward and see what, uh, what topics you guys want to hear. And if there's anything that ever triggers an idea for an episode, just shoot us a DM through Facebook, send us an email at, so as we were saying at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the content, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And as always, guys, it's a pleasure. Thank you for listening. Thanks, guys.